The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Amen. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of His work, the first of His acts of old. Ages ago I was set up, at the first, before the beginning of the earth. Those are verses 22 and 23 from our Old Testament reading uh, for this Sunday of the Holy Trinity. Believe it or not, those verses right there, particularly verse 22, were at the heart of a major controversy within the church of the 4th century. The controversy had to do with the exact relationship of Jesus Christ to God the Father. There were all these false teachings gaining steam around that time that were spearheaded by this very gifted theologian and pastor named Arius. So this goes to show you that just because someone is gifted and because they can spin a tail and because they can speak publicly, that doesn't mean that they are correct. Arius was gifted through the roof. He and his followers taught that Jesus was not God, but that he was the very first thing that God created. The closest thing to God in all of creation. And do you know which passage of Scripture Arius used to justify that claim? This one. This one right here. This controversy concerning the person of Christ became so great that it led to a church council. All the church throughout the known world at that time coming together, the bishops and the pastors coming together at the Council of Nicaea in 325 AD. And it would lead to the eventual formulation of what we now know as the Nicene Creed. And eventually the church would have to continue to define the relationship of Jesus to the Father and the Holy Spirit to the Father and the Son, which led to the formulation of the Athanasian Creed, which we just confessed. Now, in our day, we are far too quick to give in to what I have heard some call doctrinal despair. Doctrinal despair. This means that rather than contending for the truth, rather than standing up for what we believe, teach, and confess, we would rather shrug our shoulders and pretend that Christian doctrine doesn't matter. We tend to think that all that matters is that we love Jesus, that we all just love Jesus and we get along. That sounds nice. And I want to get along, and I want others to love Jesus, but this is ultimately a position of doctrinal despair, because it assumes this. It assumes that the truth about Jesus ultimately cannot be known, or that it's simply something that's a matter of opinion. It's a matter of opinion, and so what does it matter that I hold this opinion and you hold that opinion? What matters is that we love Jesus. The truth is, is that Doctrine, the teaching of Christ, is what he has said about himself. Whenever it comes to the person of Christ that we worship, when it comes to the person of God, the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit, whom we worship, whom has the, the, the God who has saved us and has redeemed us, the important question is this, which one? Which one? Which Jesus has done this for us? Is it the Jesus of your own making? Or is it the real Jesus? And if we truly love Jesus, well then guess what? It follows that we actually love what he has said about himself. We don't get to shrug our shoulders and say, oh well, big deal. Doctrine doesn't matter. It matters. 
The church throughout the ages has always considered matters of doctrine worth going to the mat for. This is Nicaea. It's a depiction of Nicaea. They've always considered it a, 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 a point worth dying for if necessary. It was not simply a matter of opinion, just so long as we can get along and love Jesus for them. It was a matter of life and death. If you've got the wrong Jesus, you've got the wrong faith. If you've got the wrong faith, you've got judgment. For the entire Christian church throughout the centuries, matters of doctrine are matters of salvation. It's critical that the one who gave himself for your sins and mine, the one who hung on the cross and bled and died, the one who rose for your justification is now ascended on high. It's essential that he is the eternal word of God, the second person of the Holy Trinity, and it is crucial that he be divine. Otherwise, what happens to our faith? It falls apart. When the divinity of Christ was under attack by the false teachers in the fourth century, the early church stood. They stood and they confessed rightly that Jesus Christ is of the same substance as the Father. He is begotten, not made, as we confess in the Nicene and Athanasian creeds. You see, Arius, <clears throat> Arius looked at that passage in Proverbs 8. He looked at it and he wanted to interpret the rest of Scripture through that one highly poetic passage. But what the church fathers did instead was read the rest of the passages about Jesus and his person and harmonize that passage, Proverbs 8, with the rest of the Scriptures. What they did was they allowed Scripture to interpret Scripture. That's the principle. Scripture interprets Scripture. And by doing so, they actually established that this passage we're talking about today, Proverbs 8, this passage affirms the truth that Jesus Christ shares in the undivided unity of the divine nature with God the Father. I know that's a lot of big words, but we'll kind of break that down a little bit. He, in other words, Jesus participates within the very act of creation itself. That's what we need to keep in mind here. Jesus participates in the very act of creation itself. Now, if you want to talk more about the Arian controversy of the early church, come talk to me after service. I, don't, I wish I had more time for it here. This is not a lecture. This is a sermon. Okay? But this is why it's important that we observe Trinity Sunday. This is why it's critical that we have a festival like this. So that at least once a year, we have this opportunity to intentionally revisit the doctrine of the Trinity, this doctrine, this teaching that is so foundational, so foundational and critical to biblical Christianity. And the Old Testament reading from Proverbs appointed for this day is not only a beautiful passage for us to hear, but it's also a nanana boo boo to Arius and to all the heretics. That's why we read this passage on this day. Proverbs 8 begins with this call of wisdom. Does not wisdom call? Does not understanding raise her voice? In verse 4, it says, To you, O men, I call, and my cry is to the children of men, children of man. The book of Proverbs is all about wisdom. Wisdom. How to get it, how to keep it, and what to do with it. And the book begins with that famous verse that we, most of us probably know, uh, chapter 1, verse 7, it says, The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. 
The beginning of wisdom. So this idea of wisdom is the major theme in the book of Proverbs. Now, wisdom is personified in this book. That means that the author turns this idea, this idea of wisdom, into a person uh, for the sake of illustrating and underscoring his point. So, for example, it would be like if I wrote in my diary, which I don't have one, by the way, but if I wrote in my diary about my anger, and I wrote about anger as this, mad, this raging madman constantly going on these tirades, this madman that I can't control. I'm, I'm making a point. I'm personifying my anger. I'm turning him into a person. It's to make a point. It's not literal, right? So uh, in chapter 8, we see that wisdom, who, by the way, has been given a female persona, Wisdom raises her voice. She's given a female persona. There's nothing to look into too much there. That's just because in the original Hebrew, uh, there are nouns are either feminine or masculine. And so wisdom is feminine in Hebrew. So that's why she's a woman. But wisdom calls out to all mankind. She invites us all to hear her call and receive her. For what, for what reason are we to receive wisdom? so that we might gain an understanding of what God wants us to know. This is what wisdom is for. And what is it about wisdom that we are to know? That's when we pick it up in verse 22. This is a depiction of that verse artistically. The Lord possessed me at the beginning of his work, the first of his acts of old. Ages ago, ages ago, I was set up at the first before the beginning of the earth. So the text goes on to describe how, how wisdom was present before anything, before anything was created, before time itself. It can rightly be said that God created everything in and through wisdom. And this should sound somewhat familiar to us with other passages of Scripture, those passages that are directly, directly attributed to Jesus. Think about it. St. John, the evangelist, he was a faithful Jew. He must have had Proverbs 8 in mind whenever he wrote John 1. He said, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was in the beginning with God. All things were made through him. St. Paul, whenever he was writing to uh, the church at Thessalonica, he must have had something similar in mind whenever he called Christ or actually the Corinthians, he called Christ the power and wisdom of God. Christ is the wisdom of God. What am I getting at? The New Testament authors, the, the, the apostles, looked at Jesus, and what they saw in Jesus was the very wisdom that Proverbs 8 was talking about. Jesus is the fulfillment of the Old Testament poetic personification. Jesus Christ is the wisdom spoken about in the Old Testament. He was with God before all things. He was the one through whom God created the world. That's your Jesus. Now, where did the church fathers get the idea that Jesus was begotten, not made? This, this phrase that we use in the creed all the time. Begotten, not made. This is one of those places. Verses 24 and 25, when there were no depths, I was brought forth. Another word for that is begotten. 
Before the mountains had been shapes, uh, shaped, before the hills I was brought forth, begotten. Begotten. Jesus is the only begotten Son of God. We say stuff like that all the time, but what do we mean by that? We say that in John 3. We know John 3.16. God gave His only begotten Son. What does that mean? Well, it's, it's complicated, but one of the things I can tell you, I can tell you, is what it does not mean. Whatever it means, it cannot mean that He was created. It cannot mean that the Son of God, the eternal, person of the, Holy, the eternal second person of the Holy Trinity, was created. That's what it doesn't mean. Because created, created implies something that is external to you. What do I mean by that? If, if you create something, it means that you make something that does not share in your same substance. Okay? That, that, that storage shed that you built a couple years ago, you, you're not made of the same stuff as that storage shed. Make sense? The art project that you put together, you don't share the same substance and the same essence. It's external to you. Begotten, everybody say begotten. Begotten means something entirely different. When you and your spouse begat a child, that child is of the same stuff as you. Are they not? They are. Same genetic material, same nature. Just rearranged a little bit. That's something of what we're talking about here with Jesus. Begotten of the Father before all worlds. Before the, before the creation of time itself. Jesus, Jesus is begotten. Eternally generated of the Father. There was no time stamp that you could put on it. Yes, we're in the weeds here. We are in the weeds here, but this is so important. So important. This is the person of Jesus that we're talking about. You may say, well, that's all well and good, but what does this have to do with me? I mean, all this fancy white tower theology, it doesn't make all that much sense to me, and it doesn't really mean that much to me. Does it matter for me? And I would say that perhaps it doesn't make a whole lot of sense to you, and that's fine. Can I let you in on a little secret? We're not supposed to completely get it. If you and I completely got it, who would that make us? God. But we're not. We're limited in our ability to process this stuff. So take a deep breath. What we are called to do is simply hold to it and believe it. We're called to confess it. I would say that this has everything to do with you. Everything. Verses, uh, verses 30 and 31 say this. It says that as the universe and all of creation were coming into being, Jesus was beside the Father. It says like a master workman. And he was daily... This is some incredible stuff. This is take off your shoes because you're standing on holy ground type of stuff. What we see here is what C.S. Lewis called the dance. The dance. 
at the creation of all things, the Son delighting in the Father and the creation of delighting in the Son and the Holy Spirit did as well. He's not explicitly mentioned in Proverbs 8, but we know from other passages that the Spirit is there as well. God creates everything out of sheer love and joy within the community of the Holy Trinity. He didn't create humans because He was lonely. That's not the story of Christianity. Rather, He created because out of the overflow of His love, this was His will. Was to create in love that love that existed in eternity past between the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. He created you in love. Delight. And Jesus saw humanity as the crown of God's creation and He rejoiced He rejoiced. So Jesus' great love for you is so beautifully taught in this Proverbs passage. It says that He loves you simply because you are a creation of the triune God. But as those who confess the Nicene Creed, we know that the story of salvation goes further than that, doesn't it? The Creed says that Jesus is begotten, not made, being of one substance with the Father, by whom all things were made, who for us men did what? And for our salvation, He came down from heaven and was incarnate. He was incarnate. You see, you and I, you and I are begotten of Adam. We are begotten of Adam. We are descendants of His flesh and blood. And because of that, we are made of the same stuff as Adam, sinful nature and all. We daily sin much and we are deserving of nothing but God's eternal wrath and punishment. But the love that we see expressed in the triune Godhead in, in Proverbs 8 is fully demonstrated in that Jesus, the eternal word and wisdom of God, takes on flesh for you and for your salvation. The only begotten one, the one who shares in the divine substance of his Father, took on your substance, took on your flesh, yet without sin, so that you would be redeemed, so that you would be forgiven of all of your sins, and you would be brought into the fellowship of this Holy Trinity. The eternal wisdom of God took on a body. He took on a human body so that there would be something to nail to the cross. The eternal wisdom of God assumed blood to himself so that there would be something to spill. And we know that death could not hold him, but that there was the Trinity in action. The Father gave the Spirit who raised Christ from the dead so that we too would have newness of life. And through the waters of holy baptism, you are born anew. You are now begotten of the Father. Not in the same way as Jesus, but you are adopted and you are a recipient of the kingdom nonetheless. So the doctrine of the Trinity stands today as it ever did, as the true confession of the God who loves you and who has redeemed you so that you would ever be His delight the crown of His creation and redemption. Clear as mud? Probably. 
what you don't understand today about the doctrine of the Trinity, simply be content to confess it gladly, to hold to it in faith. In other words, I don't completely understand it, but I believe it. You're in good company. This triune God has revealed himself to you in the scriptures, not so that you would understand everything, but so that you would know beyond a shadow of a doubt that he loves you and that he gave himself to you in the person of Jesus, the eternal son of God. May you hold fast to this true confession in every time and in every place so that others might know the great love of God, the love that he has for the children of man. Amen.